Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олян. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. We've got an experimental show today doing something a little bit different i'll explain why in a minute i'm recording this on wednesday morning 6 30 exactly a.m july 13th after i believe the seventh episode or rather the seventh hearing of the january 6th committee and man did a lot of stuff happen yesterday in that i think that any objective observer that's paying attention to these hearings now has to conclude that trump was I mean, just guilty as a sin, which is something that, you know, obviously I know and you listening to this have known for a long time. I think the evidence is damning. I think having his own people, even some of the the MAGA horde and these soldiers on the ground testify against him is, is just, I mean, how can you argue around that? The case that they were making that, hey, there was this meeting in December where Rudy Giuliani, who, you know, <laughs> fucking crazy criminal Rudy, Rudy, whose father served time in Sing Sing for sticking up a milkman, that Rudy, Sidney Powell, who's clearly not <laughs> all there, man, ruining Diet Dr. Pepper for me, possibly forever. And uh, they keep calling him the Overstock guy. Oh, it's the CEO of Overstock, this guy, Patrick Byrne. He's not just the CEO of Overstock. He was like, you know, with Maria Butina. Like they were like serious. Um, it's weird. That guy's weird. He's got a lot of sketchy shit going on. I don't know the nature of it exactly, but he's not just the CEO of Overstock. It's more than that. He's definitely got connections to Russia. Let's just put it that way. And did at the time that he was in this meeting. So that meeting happens. This guy, Cipollone, Patsy Baloney shows up. 
15 minutes after it happens to get them the fuck out of there. Cipollone is one of these Opus Dei guys. He's one of the guys that's in that that Leonard Leo circle, the Catholic Information Center circle. But, you know, there he is on that particular night, at least trying to do the right thing, I guess. I don't know why these people took so long to, you know, require subpoenas to tell us all this horrible stuff to try to save democracy, but whatever. Better late than never, I suppose. So I think where this is headed now, after this last episode, it's, it's been pretty clear. The committee is going to recommend to the Justice Department that Trump be indicted. I think that's where this is headed. I mean, they have to, right? It, the fact that these guys are all out and about and doing their thing, and by these guys, I mean Mike Flynn, I mean Roger Stone, I mean Giuliani and the, the people that were in that meeting. The fact that they're still out and about doing their thing, Bannon on his fucking idiot podcast, I don't know. Any other society at any other point in history that it would at least be in jail right now. I mean, the fact that we just let him dance around, it's just, I don't know. I don't like it at all. I don't understand it at all. So what I'm afraid of is that this is going to cause some sort of crisis. I know there's a lot of shit about Merrick Garland and some people defend him. Some people insist that the Justice Department is doing this the right way. They're working up the ladder, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's true. I don't know. We'll see. And there was reporting this week that that isn't true, that the Cassidy Hutchinson thing was like, whoa, wait a minute, Trump is involved? <laughs> January 6th? I don't know what to believe at this point, but if the committee recommends that Trump be indicted and the Justice Department does not indict him, that's a huge problem. Huge. And that is the thing that would tank Biden getting reelected. It, it would tank the midterms and it would tank that too. So there's a lot on the line here, not just, you know, justice for these fucking seditionists who tried to overthrow our government, but the, the future of democracy in this country. Because if Garland just refuses to move on that and Biden allows it, that's a terrible look and I don't think we can survive it. So I'm hoping that that's not the case. You know, maybe this J6 thing is going to give him the impetus to do it. Maybe he want, maybe the Justice Department can't wait to indict Trump and they just need cover, political cover. And this will give them the political cover. I mean, Liz Cheney is a Republican, you know, listen to her talk about abortion and, and voting rights and stuff like that. She's, you know, one of them. So for her to be out here just destroying Trump and, and, and exposing this horrible crime, this conspiracy to overthrow the government. Again, we have to keep saying it. This conspiracy to overthrow the fucking government in this country, in the United States. And Trump did it. And his small circle of, what did they call them in the hearings? Crazies. I don't know how crazy they are. I would watch a reality show that just followed Peter Navarro around prison. I think that would be a fun show. Can we get uh, Burnett to produce that one? <laughs> Okay, the reason this is an experimental show is because I'm on the road. Right now, I'm not on the road. Right now, I'm home. But I'm leaving today for a little trip. I am pending unforeseen disaster. I'm in Berlin, in Germany, where the euro and the dollar are almost even for the first time in quite some time. So that's where I'm going to be. A little work trip. No big deal. Something that was planned. But um, it makes the flow of the podcast a little hard. So I thought, you know, what I'll do is... I have these four pieces that I've written for Prevail 
that are kind of, they're narrative pieces, you know, they're storytelling kind of pieces. My first thought was, oh, I'll read the pieces. Nobody wants to hear me talk for an hour without any interruption. That would be terrible. So I got the idea that I would ask four friends of mine who are good actors, good, have nice voices and all that, uh, to read, each one of them to read one piece. So that's what I did. And they did it, and it was really great. Um, so I want to just intro uh, who these guys are so that you know and which pieces they're going to read. Okay, the first piece was published on June 7th. It's called Confidence Man, and it's about Jeffrey Epstein. And that's going to be read by Allison Weller, fantastic actress, which, you know, she went to high school with me, and she was a fantastic actress then. She still is. She's an actor. She's a writer, producer, educator. Her work has toggled between investigative and classical theater. And now she's been in some some movies and some TV shows. She's been on The Good House. She's been on Hocus Pocus 2 and Spirited. And yeah, she was in Don't Look Up. So, And then she also said, personal obsessions include the fate of our democracy and holding on to civil rights for all, which is true also. She's also very smart. So um, Allison's going to read uh, the piece about Epstein. That's going to be the first one. Then we're going to hear from my man, Robert Burke Warren, super interesting guy, really talented guy, writer, performer, teacher, musician. He wrote a novel called Perfectly Broken. That's fantastic. It's about this rock star guy in the 90s. Um, he had a one-man show. It's an autobiographical one-man show called Redheaded Friend, which was fantastic that we saw up at the Phoenicia Theater. He is the editor of Cash on Cash, Interviews and Encounters with Johnny Cash. He's written stuff in a whole bunch of places. You can find his music on albums by RuPaul. He, he went to high, I went to high school with Allison Weller. I think he went to high school with RuPaul. Okay. Uh, Roseanne Cash, Rockabilly Queen, Wanda Jackson. And The Roots used his tune, The Elephant in the Room, as John McCain's entrance theme on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. And in the 90s, he was the lead. He played Buddy Holly in Buddy, the Buddy Holly story in London, the West End. And then before that, he played bass and traveled all over the world. So super interesting guy. He's going to read the piece about Trump that I wrote, which I think was the first chronologically of these. That's called Portrait of an American Strongman. That was published on February 1st of this year. Then Shame Cometh, which is the Jared Kushner thing. That published a week after the Trump one, which was February 8th. Thanks to Steve Schmidt, it trended on Twitter for basically two days, um, which is kind of crazy pretty sure Kushner read it. That's going to be read by my friend Diana Speckler. She's a writer like me. Not like me, because she's had a lot more <laughs> a lot more literary success than I've had. Um, she has two novels, Who by Fire and Skinny, which are both terrific. She had a, a, an opinion series in the New York Times called Going Off, and she's written for The Guardian and GQ, The Washington Post, Esquire, Sweeney's, Paris Review Daily, which is a big deal. Glimmer Train. These are all like big deals. Plowshares. Um, she's been in a bunch of anthologies. Eight times she won the Moth Story Slam contest thing. And she's been on the Moth Radio Hour, the Moth Podcast. She's been on NPR. And uh, oh my God, she won all these awards that I'm not even going to list because there's too many of them. But there's a lot. So she's she's like a re she's like a big deal. You know, she's kind of a big deal. And she has that that um, substack now called Dispatches from the Road, which is terrific. So I got her to read this one and she made like no mistakes in this thing. Like, you know, everybody flubs lines or they have to repeat. It was very few flubs. It was very few even intake breaths. So I wrote her and I said, you should do books on tape. 
And she was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. But um, I don't think they're called books on tape anymore. <laughs> okay. And then last but not least, a piece called The King Must Die, which is about Putin and really about Russia and Ukraine and tries to explain that situation by, you know, setting it in this sort of almost fantastical kind of way. So that's going to be read by Tom Galtieri, fantastic actor. He did this, he calls it that play, a solo Macbeth, which was exactly what it says. It was a solo Macbeth. And I think somebody else did. He did it first. It was really great. We saw it in New York years ago. And, you know, you got to memorize the whole damn play to do that and then act all the parts. And and he did it. It was, it was really good, really good actor. So he did that. He's a drama desk nominee for that. He has a collaboration with composer David Sisko, and they perform together in Sisko's Bait and Switch and in concerts of their work. And uh, I think their their music is available at their Selfy store. I don't know what that is, but it's S-E-L-L-F-Y. And they're doing this video songwriting series called Draw the Circle Wide, which is intended to raise awareness about diversity and inclusion in musical theater. Each episode features an interview with a musical performer and a song written just for them. So Tom's great, you know, Shakespearean. And in fact, in the piece, there's two lines from Shakespeare that he gets to say. So it was appropriate that he that he got that one. I'd like to say thank you, big thank you to, to Allison and to Robert and to Diana and Tom for doing this. It was really great, great for me to hear my stuff being read by such talented people. And um, yeah, thanks, guys. So that's what we're doing. This is already a long episode. I've already talked too long. So without further ado, we're going to be right back with four villains. Our angry broads interrupting your steak dinner. Our mobs of pissed off protesters making it hard for you to enjoy your last glass of Chateau Lafitte. Have you had to sneak out the back door like your side chick's husband came home early, even before you tasted the tiramisu? Hi, I'm Nunzio Siccarelli. President of the Bank of the Bada Bing, here to tell you about our new restaurant, Moose and Rocco's. At Moose and Rocco's, we got the finest steak and chops, desserts that taste like a kiss from one of our exotic dancers, and red wine that'll make Leonard Leo's fat head explode. We also have Moose and Rocco, who will personally see to it that you are undisturbed for the duration of your meal. Whether you're a senator from one of the Hick states, a canceled entertainer, or a Supreme Court justice who thinks that abortions should once again be run by the mob, you'll love Moose and Rocco's. Moose and Rocco's, where your steak and your security are well done. And now, back to the show. Confidence Man, a tale of princes, presidents, and predators. We've seen characters like this before. They're uncommon, but not unheard of. They emerge out of nowhere and Tom Ripley their way into the highest strata of society. They speak into existence their own importance. They are relentless in their quest for fame and fortune and power. They collect influential friends and amass vast wealth for sport. Their background doesn't check out, but no one seems to mind as long as the check's clear and the champagne flows. And then one day, inevitably... It all comes crashing down. Jay Gatsby is one such character. He came from nothing, traveled abroad, cavorted with criminals, built a fortune, went to great lengths to conceal the humble details of his past. He was decadent, but his tastes ran to the nouveau riche. He was interested only in himself. 
He believed the rules did not apply to him. He could be generous and charming, but beneath the veneer of old sport respectability was insecurity, self-loathing, and rage. He lived the American dream and the American nightmare. He died a violent death. Gatsby is fictitious, of course, but the elements are all the same. And isn't much of Epstein's story also a work of fiction? Epstein is a real-life Gatsby, but a poisoned Gatsby, a daisyless Gatsby, a Gatsby without the green light, a Gatsby from hell. He is a magic trick inverted. Now you don't see him, now you do. One day he's just there, in the thick of it all, possessor of an opulent Upper East Side townhouse, the most expensive residence in all of Gotham. He could not have acquired such a signature property if he was not rich. That's what everyone thinks, at least. That's the rationale. If he lives there, he must be legit. Money can't buy you everything, but it can certainly bring you the benefit of the doubt. Rumors fly, but as with Gadsby, the rumors are little more than speculation. He's a financier, is what the papers say. He must be very good at whatever it is he does. He must know how to play the markets. He must know how to invest. He must have the wealthiest clients in the world. He must be a magician with money. Rabbit from a hat. Now you don't see it. Now you do. Even now, we don't fully know the origin of the money. Was he the beneficiary of the largesse of his earliest patron, the garment industry magnet? Was he a new way of Meyer Lansky, laundering vast sums for organized crime? Was he an arms dealer, or rather... A broker between arms buyers and arms sellers, a conduit to move money without detection. Was he a modern-day pirate, his entire fortune purloined from some secret CIA slush fund? We don't really know. We may never know. We do know about the posh mansion at 9 East 71st Street, just off Central Park, same neighborhood as Woody Allen and Bill Cosby. The townhouse is, essentially, a gift from the garment industry magnet, the underwear mogul, destroyer of healthy body images, prime mover of the insidious trend of female models to look less like voluptuous adult women and more like prepubescent boys. He and the garment industry magnet are close, intimates, some say, the same word used to describe the slinky wares the garment industry magnet has on offer. Pretty underage girls admire the young women, who look like younger boys, who model the underwear. He uses this as a recruitment tool. I can make you a model for my friend, the garment industry magnet. I can make you famous. In the early years, the clumsy years, this is how he operates. He makes promises he has no intention of keeping. He develops a persona. He hides behind a cloak of money and mystery. He eschews suits and ties for more casual clothes. He cultivates friendships with high-powered individuals at the top of their fields. Scientists, attorneys, politicians, actors, writers. He throws dinner parties, salons, really, where these individuals can meet and talk shop. The conversations are stimulating. That's his primary function, to bring interesting people together and make everything stimulating. The socialite, so-called, is on hand for most of these parties. She is with him all the time, but the nature of their relationship is hard to define. Are they boyfriend and girlfriend? Business partners? Just close friends? Journalists can't decide, and no one cares enough to press the issue. There are rumors, but the rumors are mostly speculation. He likes the rumors. The rumors cultivate mystique. There were rumors about Gadsby, too, 
they say he killed a man. What he will wind up doing is much, much worse and can't be articulated so simply. There are girls at the parties. Not all of the parties, but enough of the parties. Somehow he determines who might be interested in a different extra-legal kind of stimulation. Once upon a time, it was a commonplace for older men of means to take much younger women as lovers, as mistresses, as wives. Royals did it on the regular in days of yore, and artists and poets, too. The creator of Alice, the paradigm of the kind of girl these predatory men chase after, and of Wonderland, the proto-upside-down, where the regular rules do not apply, where the first instruction to Alice is, eat me, Mr. Dodgson left for posterity all those photos of naked girls. Charlie Chaplin liked them young, and society indulged him. Elvis Presley liked them young, and society indulged him. So it is with his party guests, the subversive ones who crave what only he can provide. Age of consent is a construct, they argue. This is our birthright. This is our due. This is droit de seigneur for the modern age. That's the kind of stimulation these men desire, an odious form of stimulation difficult to safely procure in polite society. With the help of his socialite cum procuris, he gives them what they want, and then they are his. These encounters happen at the townhouse, but also at the ranch in New Mexico, and at his vacation home in Palm Beach, and also at the private island. He has his own island. There are girls at the parties, so many girls, girls recruited from the poorer parts of town, girls from eastern bloc countries, girls recruited by other girls, girls paid a week's worth of wages at their jobs at the mall to give back rubs for a few hours. Some of them never return to the party. Others are groomed by the socialite cum procurus and by him personally. Back rubs give way to blowjobs. They are taught how to behave, how to defer, how to please, how to keep quiet so as not to puncture the fantasy. They are being trafficked, is the technical term, although most of them don't realize it in the moment. The girls are used as party favors. They are used to stimulate the powerful men who are now his friends, men who believe it is their due, men who don't ever want their vilest impulses to be denied. He films the girls in bed with the powerful men, and the tapes are very effective for purposes of coercion. It's amazing the lengths men will go to to ensure that this sort of thing is kept secret. He has established a blackmail factory. Was that the objective all along? The socialite helps him expand his network, take it international. Through her late father, a media mogul and a spy for any number of foreign intelligence services, he meets the prince, and not some middling royal from a flyspeck like Luxembourg. The Duke of York himself, the son of the queen. When the prince opens his thick wallet, his mum's portrait is on the banknotes. The prince enjoys his company. The prince enjoys the benefits of having him as a friend. The two men are friendly for years. There's no way the prince doesn't know. It is impossible for him not to know. He befriends not one but two presidents, one former, one future, from two different ends of the political spectrum. Both men cheat on their wives. Both have been credibly accused of rape and sexual assault. There are rides on the private jet and visits to the private island. There are parties where he and one of these men are the only males in attendance. There is no way the once and future presidents don't know. 
it is impossible for them not to know. There are others, many, many others. Some of their names are left behind in a little black book, a who's who of shame, an Israeli prime minister, a governor of the state where his ranch is located, a prominent defense attorney, probably the best in the country, affiliated with Harvard, a prominent scientist from MIT, a billionaire private equity guy, even if they never partook, and victims will later allege that they did. There is no way they don't know. It is impossible for them not to know. Then there are the employees. With all that real estate plus the private jet, there's so much to maintain. There are pilots, chauffeurs, secretaries, groundskeepers, maids, cleaning staff, security guards, videographers, technicians, handymen, accountants, lawyers, one of his chefs will later become famous in his own right, close friends with a late-night TV personality. There is no way they don't know. It is impossible for them not to know. The first time he gets caught, he agrees to a plea bargain. Even this he does with great reluctance, like the whole thing has beneath him an annoyance. The FBI locates 34 credible victims. The Miami Herald finds 80 he would be, should be, put away for decades, but he has the backing of the best lawyers and friends in the highest reaches of the federal government. As part of the plea deal, he's granted immunity from all federal charges. His accomplices are let off the hook. The investigation is shut down. The indictment is sealed. Even the victims can't access the plea agreement. He pleads guilty to a single count of solicitation of a minor. He gets 18 months in prison. The U.S. attorney who signs off on the deal will later claim that he was told to back off, that Epstein was above his pay grade, that he belonged to intelligence. Who issued this command? His short stint in custody is little more than an inconvenience. His cell at the country stockade isn't locked. Visitors come and go. He's allowed to leave for hours at a time to visit his properties, cavort with his trafficked victims, do whatever he, it is he does. He takes long walks on the beach. He flies around on his private jet. He rapes with impunity. Despite the lax rules, he's always late, always pushing the boundaries. He sleeps in the cell, but otherwise his life doesn't much change. After a little over a year, he is set free. As a sex offender, he's supposed to be added to lists, checked on by the authorities. That doesn't happen. Once freed, he is a convicted felon, guilty of soliciting sex with a minor with a digital footprint that includes tales of sex trafficking and rape allegations, but this does not affect his life at all. No one seems to care. His old associates do not leave him. They are happy he's back in business, and he makes up for lost time cultivating new friends. One of his new friends is the richest man in the country. He is the founder of a software company. He is a nerd. He knows more about computing than anyone alive, but he is incapable of using search engines. Eventually, the software company founder's wife will leave him because of his relationship with Epstein. She can use Google. The software company founder pleads ignorance, but there is no way he doesn't know. It is impossible for him not to know. He is arrested at the airport. He is on his way back from Paris, where he owns yet another deluxe property. This time, the doors on his jail cell are locked. This time, the socialite cum procurus is arrested, too. A rumor circulates that the attorney general paid him a secret visit at the jailhouse. 
That would be ironic, as it was the father of the attorney general, the doctrinaire headmaster at a private school in Manhattan, who gave him his first job. But the rumor is not true. What is true is that he did not leave the jail cell alive. The cameras blinked out. The guards fell asleep. The coroner's report ruled the death a suicide. In our bones, we will never be sure. His death will be as mysterious as the rest of his life. Fitzgerald writes on the last page, he had come a long way to this blue lawn and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him. Somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Through death, he escapes justice, escapes reckoning. The socialite does not. She is found guilty and remains in custody, awaiting sentencing. She will likely spend most of what remains of her life behind bars. But what of all the men who were their friends and clients? The ones who raped the girls they trafficked, the Harvard lawyer, the MIT scientist, the private equity guy, the prince governor, the two former presidents, the whole sick crew. Nothing happens to them. Nothing at all. Epstein fell because in the end, Epstein was not really one of them. He was an interloper, an Araviste, a fraud, a confidence man. The socialite fell because she was a woman. But nothing happens to men like the former presidents and the Duke of York and the Harvard legal scholar and the private equity billionaire. Maybe they don't get to avail themselves of their favorite nude beach. Maybe they don't get to participate in the Platinum Jubilee. Maybe they are the target of dank memes. Maybe they lose a seat on a board. But nothing with teeth. There are no real consequences. They are protected, apparently, by the same unknown forces who ordered a U.S. attorney to stand down and go easy on a rapist and child sex trafficker. Men that powerful really can do whatever they please, like lords of the manor in days of old, like they are all sons of the queen. So we beat on boats against the current, never quite able to arrive at the truth. This is the real Donald John Trump. The father was loaded parlaying a little bit of capital and a long association with the Genovese crime family into a queen's real estate empire. The son was a difficult child. He got bad grades and was often in trouble at school. Once, he punched a teacher in the mouth. Unable to control him, his parents shipped him off to military school. The experience seemed only to hone his bullying skills. It was a serial killer's childhood. Nevertheless, he was his father's favorite. If he got into trouble, he could always rely on his old man to bail him out. During Vietnam, his dad arranged for a podiatrist, a tenant in one of his properties, to concoct a medical excuse, bone spurs, so he could avoid military service. He did poorly on his SATs, but still managed to get into the University of Pennsylvania. Admission was easier back then, especially if you had money. His academic career was so lackluster that he would not allow anyone to see his grades 50 years after the fact. After graduating, he went into the family real estate business. But he wasn't satisfied with Queens. He wanted to make it in Manhattan. He wanted real fame, real fortune. 
This required working with the Gambino crime family, which controlled New York's premier borough. As always, his old man helped make it happen for him. The KGB began cultivating him in the early 1980s. He was an easy mark. Vain, stupid, amoral, sex-crazed, and desperate for cash. By the middle of that decade, he was using condos in the tower that bore his family's name to launder money for Russian organized crime figures. He liked doing business with crooks. They paid in cash, and if things went sideways, they would never sue. He married a beauty from the Eastern Bloc, a smart, ebullient immigrant whose parents were hardline communists, allegedly in league with Czechoslovakian intelligence. They had three children, two boys and a girl. When he got bored, and when her success began to overshadow his, he divorced her to marry his side piece, an actress. They had a daughter together. When he got bored, he left his second wife and eventually married his third, like the first, an Eastern European stunner with hardliner parents. They had a son. During the entire length of these three marriages, he had numerous affairs. He cavorted with models and beauty queens. He bought the Miss Universe franchise and used it as a vehicle to sexually harass and assault the contestants. When his daughter was a teenager, he had her sign with a modeling agency whose owner was notorious for sexual assault. He seemed to have a thing for the daughter, and once remarked that if they were not related, they would be dating. He palled around with a New York financier, who was always surrounded by very young women, girls, as it turned out. That financier would be convicted of procuring a child for prostitution and, much later, for much more. He raped and sexually assaulted dozens of women. He raped a well-known journalist in the dressing room of a department store. His business ventures almost always failed. Many of his companies went bankrupt. He opened a casino and it went bust. He inherited hundreds of millions of dollars from his father, and he squandered it. He lied to magazines about his fortune. He called reporters posing as a PR guy for himself. He almost single-handedly ruined a rival pro football league. He announced gifts to charities and then didn't give over the money. Banks refused to do business with him because he routinely did not make good on his commitments. He stiffed contractors. He hired illegal immigrants to work for him and paid them slave wages. His only profitable enterprise was laundering money for his Russian clients. The building that bears his name became a hub of Russian organized crime activity in the United States. Then came the TV show. It was the brainchild of a reality show producer whose initial idea was to make a program featuring Vladimir Putin. He was portrayed as a rich, successful, self-made businessman. None of these things were true. But viewers believed the myth, the legend. He was good at acting the part. He enjoyed uttering the catchphrase, you're fired. The executive at the TV station who had green-lighted the show moved from that network to the top cable news network in the United States, overseeing the entire news operation. Despite having never held elected office, his only real political experience consisted of calling for the execution of the Central Park Five and disseminating the lie that the country's first black president was born in Kenya. He decided to run for president. Media outlets, especially the cable news network run by the friend who had greenlighted his TV show, covered him as if none of the horrible things he'd done in the past had ever happened. 
The correspondent covering his campaign for the country's paper of record was more concerned with maintaining access than investigating the truth of his checkered past, a truth that could be found in the archives of her own company. He began his campaign with racist statements. He appropriated a slogan from the 1930s when the American Nazi Party was popular in New York. He was overtly sexist, overtly racist, overtly in league with the leader of our nation's longtime adversary. But the milquetoast Republican field could not stop him. None of them had been a character on a reality TV show. After all, he won the primary easily. He railed against his Democratic political opponent. He knew people didn't trust her. He tried to tap into that lack of trust. He said she should be locked up. He accused her of unspecific crimes. He kept invoking her emails. In one of the debates, she said that all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies agreed that Russia had hacked the DNC emails. She called him Putin's puppet. He seethed and stalked her on the stage. He looked more like Jack the Ripper than a serious political candidate. He lost the election by 2.8 million votes. But an uncanny series of events combined with the ham-fisted electoral college method of selecting presidents thwarted her victory. Because of Russia, because of the FBI director, because of Facebook micro-targeting, because of the racism and sexism that permeates American politics, he won. He appointed unqualified cronies and family members to key positions. His daughter and his son-in-law were his closest advisors. The Secretary of State was a retired oil executive who gutted the department. The Secretary of Education wanted to destroy the Department of Education. The Attorney General was a racist. The National Security Advisor was a traitor. And so on. He spent approximately one-third of his 1,461 days in office visiting one of his properties, including a whopping 298 days on a golf course he owned. Taxpayers paid the tab on every single one of those visits. Hotel rooms for him, his family, Secret Service, and all the members of his entourage. Estimates vary for the final tab, but it's something like $100 million over four years, a significant portion of which went right into his pocket because he owned the properties where all those people stayed and dined. Being president was a profitable racket. He obstructed justice many times, in obvious ways. He fired the FBI director because he didn't want his ties to Russia investigated. He sent goons to the offices of his doctor, and they made off with his medical records. He paid a porn star hush money. He extorted the president of an ally, threatening to withhold arms unless that president investigated his political rival. He hosted Russians in the Oval Office. On the national stage, he capitulated to Putin. He tried to intimidate the Georgia Secretary of State into fudging the election results. He was twice impeached. His accomplices and apologists let him off both times. In the early days of the pandemic, he insisted the coronavirus would just disappear. He blamed China. He blamed Democrats, governors in blue states. He and his son-in-law intentionally sabotaged the pandemic response because they thought it would help him win re-election if people in blue states died. He railed against masks. He railed against vaccines. He politicized the pandemic. This all resulted in hundreds of thousands of American deaths, more than died in the Civil War. When he got COVID, 
he tried to pretend that it was no big deal, even as his blood oxygen levels dipped to dangerous levels. He was given special medical treatment, unavailable to most people. Many millions of dollars of PPP loans went unaccounted for, likely absorbed by his cronies. Months before election day, he claimed the election would be stolen. He believed mail-in votes would hurt him, so he installed a lummox at the Postal Service, who set about destroying sorting machines. He spent months conniving ways to stay in power, despite what he knew would be a humiliating defeat at the ballot box. He lost by 7 million votes. He refused to concede. He said the votes were rigged. He said the election was stolen. He tried everything he could think of to game the system. On January 6th, the day the votes from state electors were being certified, he encouraged the crowd in Washington to go to the Capitol. He attempted a coup. To stay in power, he was willing to let his loyal VP die. He tried to overthrow the government. He's still trying to do that. Before he left office, he pardoned his many criminal accomplices, including three former campaign advisors and the traitor national security advisor. Those four men rallied the troops on January 6th. They remain at large, unbothered by the DOJ, despite openly calling for sedition. This week, at a rally, he promised to once again rise against the rightfully elected government. He dangled pardons for anyone convicted of crimes pertaining to January 6th or future coup attempts. He threatened to unleash the full force of his MAGA army if he were indicted. For this monster, this bully and brat, this racist and rapist, this mob money launderer and tax cheat, this thrice-married philanderer, this sadistic strongman who allowed a plague to take hold because he thought all that death would help him, this sore loser who attacked our democracy and did everything in his power to overturn the election, this dismal, disgraceful, deplorable failure of a human being, a quarter of the country, and maybe more, are willing to do almost anything, including kill and be killed. This is the real Donald Trump. Liz Winstead here, co-creator of The Daily Show and co-host of the Feminist Buzzkills Live pod. Well, the vaginal crossing guards on the Supreme Court have destroyed Roe v. Wade. Good news, my nonprofit abortion access front can help. On July 17th, we're hosting an activist training day called Operation Save Abortion. We're gathering experts from every area in the field of abortion justice and live streaming a series of conversations that break down the many opportunities available to you to protect access to all things reproductive care. Helping patients with travel needs, lobbying politicians, and getting into good trouble out in these streets are just a few examples that these amazing panels are going to break down and bonus connect you to the organizations in your area doing this work. So gather your friends for a watch party, then commit to becoming a defender of abortion access. I'll be there, and so should you. Operation Save Abortion, July 17th. For all the info and to register, hit up OperationSaveAbortion.com. Shame cometh, the Jared Kushner story, a tale of hubris and disgrace. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 The matriarch was a hero of the Jewish resistance. 
one of the leaders of an improbable escape from the ghetto. She helped tunnel beneath the walls and electrified fences, imprisoning the local Jewish population. After crawling through a tunnel longer than two football fields, she lived in the woods for months before joining an underground resistance group that fought the Nazis. She wound up in Budapest after the liberation. There, she married a Holocaust survivor from the same sliver of Eastern Europe. He took her surname as her family was wealthier and more prominent, Kushner. The couple emigrated to America as Sheri Hapleta, displaced persons in allied occupation zones. They started a new life in Elizabeth, New Jersey. They had three children. They put the horrible past behind them. They looked ahead to the sunshiny future. The grandfather was a carpenter, a construction worker, and in time, a real estate developer. Taking advantage of funding through various federal programs, he made it big. The grandfather became one of the so-called Holocaust builders, Jewish survivors of the Second World War, who amassed vast fortunes in New Jersey real estate development. How better to combat all that destruction than to build? A heroic Nazi fighter and a great builder, these were the paternal grandparents. The father married within the local Orthodox Jewish community. He and his wife had four children, two boys and two girls. The father became the head of the company the grandfather built. On his watch, the family business became exponentially more successful. A kingdom became an empire. There were 10,000 apartment units, commercial properties, industrial properties, a bank. The father gave away a lot of money. He endowed Jewish academies and synagogues. He sat on boards. He gave generously to charitable causes in the U.S. and in Israel, hospitals, universities, religious organizations. Most of all, he donated to political campaigns, for Democrats, mostly. The father was good at the politics side of the job. He was handsome and debonair. He liked people. He liked publicity. He liked power. He liked having the most powerful people in the world at his beck and call. The President of the United States, the future Prime Minister of Israel, and anyone who was anyone in New Jersey. He was a big wheel in Garden State politics, the sort of character who turns up in television programs about smoke-filled backroom political intrigue, a kingmaker, until it all came crashing down. The money, the power, the fame and fortune, none of it was enough for the father. He wanted to extend his empire into the Empire State. He wanted to run the Port Authority. He wanted to strong-arm the new governor. In a word, he wanted more. To get more, the father risked everything he and his family had built. He violated federal law repeatedly. He filed false tax returns. He filed false campaign finance reports. When he discovered that his sister and brother-in-law were cooperating with a federal investigation, he hired a prostitute to honeypot his brother-in-law, videotaped the tryst, and sent the tape to his sister. That sleazy and ruthless act, witness tampering technically, 
became one of the 18 counts to which he pleaded guilty. He served two years in federal prison, the first 14 months in Alabama. When the father was released from jail, he was no longer a big wheel in local politics. He was no longer a kingmaker. He could no longer practice law. When he was mentioned now in the newspapers, his name was festooned with unseemly modifiers like disgraced and convicted felon and crook. This was the father. The son was tall and quiet like his mother. He was intellectually lazy and not particularly smart, but was always convinced he knew better than anyone else, despite ample evidence to the contrary. He got ho-hum grades in high school. His SATs were subpar. He applied to Harvard, but was only accepted after his father donated millions to the school. He had an unusual college experience. On weekends, he flew to Alabama to visit his father in prison. While taking classes, he ran some of the family real estate concerns in Boston. He did not leave a mark at the school. Little about him was memorable. When he graduated, he went to work for the family real estate business. His big idea was to buy a building on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. The cost was staggering, $1.8 billion. The deal closed in 2007 at the height of the boom. The real estate market collapsed along with the rest of the economy within months of the ink drying. The building was underwater. The debt service was onerous, threatening to bankrupt the family business. He was willing to do almost anything to prevent that from happening. If the investment failed, if the company failed, that meant that he had failed, that he hadn't been right. And he was always right. He married the daughter of an infamous New York personality, a loudish gossip column fixture who was a money launderer for the Russian mob. The family did not approve of her because she was not Jewish. To appease them, she converted although she kept her last name, just as his grandmother had. He and his wife became a power couple, power brokers in the most powerful city in the world. That seemed to be the point of the marriage. Certainly, there was no discernible passion on the part of either party, and plenty of lurid rumors. The wife would later describe their first date as the best deal we ever made. He bought a beloved New York publication known for its exquisite writing and the salmon color of its newspapers and gutted it, destroying everything about it that made it special. Like his father, he was good at networking. He knew lots of influential people, media magnates, head of state, intelligence operatives, elder statesmen, PR executives, models, actors, politicians, cable news talking heads. Those influential people wielded their influence on his behalf, often in subtle ways. Unlike his father, but like the original Holocaust builders, he preferred to stay in the background. He shied away from publicity. He was a poor public speaker with a reedy, unpleasant speaking voice. His kid brother married a supermodel, soaked up the good life, enjoyed jet-setting and hobnobbing with celebs in Southern California, not him. He was more concerned with accruing power. He genuinely enjoyed the company of older men. He learned from them insofar as he allowed himself to learn. His father-in-law was running for president as a Republican, 
The man was a buffoon, but he was a marketing genius, and he was family. His father-in-law asked him to join the team, despite him being a Democrat. He accepted. Power trumped politics. He took over social media operations. He worked with sophisticated tech companies that specialized in micro-targeting. Through Henry Kissinger, of all people, he was connected to important players in the Russian government. The Russians wanted to help his father-in-law win the election. He wanted the same thing and saw no reason why he should refuse the help. He lobbied for his father-in-law to hire as campaign chair a sleazy lobbyist with long ties to Russian intelligence. He met with Russians before his father-in-law's first foreign policy speech at a stately Washington hotel. When Russians promised dirt on his father-in-law's political opponent, he met with them at the building that bore his wife's family's name. He met with Russians again in that same building, covertly, secreting them through a private entrance. At an upscale New York hotel, he met with the head of a sanctioned Russian bank. The Russians later said the meeting pertained to his family business. He proposed a back channel via the Russian embassy so he could talk to the Russians without anyone hearing. It wasn't limited to Russia. He met with other foreign nationals as well, princes from Saudi Arabia, from the United Arab Emirates. He met with anyone he thought could help his father-in-law's campaign or fix the long-standing problem of his company's onerous debt on his Manhattan building. None of this was legal. After his father-in-law won, he took a job as a senior advisor. On the form senior advisors have to fill out to get a security clearance, he made key omissions, so he filled it out a second time. He made more omissions, so he filled it out a third time. He did not get the security clearance, but his father-in-law insisted he be given the job anyway. Intentionally omitting meetings with foreign nationals on a security clearance form is a felony, but he was never charged. He was a voracious consumer of the president's daily brief, a document that contained all the highest level top secret intelligence and national security information. On the transition team, he and his wife wanted a general who had been fired by the previous president and who was under FBI investigation for possible seditious activities to be named national security advisor. His father-in-law took their advice. The general was forced to leave the position a few months later, after he was caught lying to the FBI and possibly to the vice president. The general later pleaded guilty to making false statements. Through his PR connections, he was able to receive most favorable press, especially in the paper of record. A glowing feature of him ran in a prominent financial magazine under the subtitle, Boy Wonder. The press pushed the narrative that he and his wife were the mitigating influences in the White House. They were decent, they were normal, through his tabloid connections, he was able to turn the gossip rags against the Democrats and also to kill stories that might be damaging to his father-in-law. When he found out that the FBI was investigating his father-in-law's campaign for meeting with all those Russians, he suggested to his father-in-law that the FBI director be fired. The FBI director is not popular with the Democrats, he said 
because they believe he cost his father-in-law's rival the election. They will love this, he said. His father-in-law listened, firing the FBI director. The Democrats did not love it. The Democrats thought it was obstruction of justice. The day after the FBI director was fired, the father-in-law met with Russian government officials in the Oval Office. He was the de facto ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He befriended the crown prince, like him a millennial, unlike him a psychopath. He spent a lot of time with the crown prince in Riyadh, so much so that the crown prince bragged that he was in my pocket. He gave the crown prince classified intelligence, information about who in the Saudi royal family was loyal and who was not. After meeting with him, the crown prince initiated a purge of the royal family. He lobbied for Saudi Arabia to be the first country his father-in-law would visit as president. Other presidents did not visit the kingdom because of the grotesque human rights abuses there. He didn't care. The Saudis had money, lots of money, and he needed money, lots of money. And so his father-in-law made a state visit to the kingdom. Later, his buddy, the crown prince, had a dissident journalist murdered, the body hacked in pieces with a bone saw. It is widely believed that he knew about the threat to this journalist but did nothing to warn him. His family was close with the disgustingly corrupt prime minister of Israel. They were old family friends. His father-in-law moved the Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which did nothing but piss off the Palestinians and thrill rapture-happy evangelicals. He brokered a Middle East peace deal, which was really a business deal between his old family friend and his friends in various royal families. And of course, him and his father-in-law. He lobbied for a blockade of Qatar, our strongest Arab ally and the site of our largest military base in the Middle East, in order to secure a new loan for his family's underwater Fifth Avenue building. In a roundabout way, this worked. The Qataris indirectly bailed out his company. The blockade was ended. His portfolio was a catalog of failure. He was tasked with solving the opioid crisis. He did not. He was tasked with ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He did not. He was tasked with building the wall between the U.S. and Mexico. He did not. He was tasked with managing the stockpile of medicine and PPE. He fucked that up royally, for the American people at least, if not for his rich cronies. He hoarded the stuff and forced states to bid against each other for it. During the early days of the pandemic, he set up a shadow task force to devise an appropriate response. When that task force gave him its recommendations, masks, contact tracing, federal coordination of supplies, etc., he ignored them. The virus, he saw, was hitting the blue states the hardest. It would help his father-in-law politically, he came to believe, if the pandemic continued to rage in those states. This way, his father-in-law could blame the governor of those states, who were all Democrats, for the escalating public health crisis, avoiding responsibility. So he decided to scuttle the plans given him by his own task force and let the virus run amok. At the time, the states hit the hardest by COVID-19 were New York, New Jersey, and California. 
New York, where he lived for years, where most of his friends lived, New Jersey, where he grew up, where his parents lived, California, where his brother lived. He was willing to let the populations of those states, home to his family and friends, get sick and die to help his father-in-law's re-election prospects. Again, he was willing to let the populations of those states get sick and die to help his father-in-law's re-election prospects. As of this writing, 904,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. The unofficial number is well over a million. Most of those deaths could have been prevented had he and his father-in-law not sabotaged the pandemic response. The grandson of Holocaust survivors allowed that mass death to happen. He served in his father-in-law's administration for four years and was the second most powerful person in the White House. If he did anything to stop his father-in-law's racist, sexist, cruel impulses, there is no evidence of it. During the Muslim travel ban, he did nothing. When refugee children were separated from their parents, he did nothing. After Charlottesville, when neo-Nazis paraded through the streets chanting, Jews will not replace us, he did nothing even as his father-in-law defended the neo-Nazis. During the Black Lives Matter protests, he did nothing when his wife suggested they forcibly remove protesters so his father-in-law could get a photo in front of a church. He did nothing, and he did nothing as his father-in-law's toxic rhetoric awakened white nationalist, neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic sentiment all across the country. He did nothing as fascists took over the GOP, the same kind of hateful people who, eight decades ago, rounded up Jews like his paternal grandparents and sent them to concentration camps. He and his wife made over half a billion dollars while working at the White House. That doesn't count future earnings on connections forged and promises made during his time there, especially during the pandemic, when a lot of federal money went missing. He is now hitting up investors for his new investment capital concern. So far, he's amassed some $3 billion. How much of this is payment for services rendered? How much of it is blood money? Why has he not been charged for his many crimes? Who is protecting him? And for what purpose? How does he live with himself? How does he sleep at night? In two generations, the family went from escaping Nazis to doing business with the Nazi bank of choice, from endowing Jewish causes to allying with anti-Semitic white nationalists, and from surviving the Holocaust to authorizing a blue state genocide. This is the real Jared Kushner. For shame. The king must die. Ukraine, a play in five acts. Once upon a time, there was a king and a queen. Their marriage united two countries, making theirs the largest kingdom in the world. The king loved the queen's land, the bustling cities, the rich natural resources, the arable land, the many miles of coastline. He knew that without the queen, he would not be as powerful. His lands might have been vaster, but hers were more valuable. It was an arranged marriage, and loveless. The queen hated the king. The king was drunk, abusive, violent, 
and cruel. Once decades ago, he sabotaged the food supply in the Queen's land, causing four million of her people to die of starvation. For years, she tolerated his abuses, having no choice, but at the first opportunity, she sued for divorce and won. Now her lands were once again hers, and only hers. Now the king held sway no longer. The king could not stand this. How dare she leave? It drove him mad. He resolved to reunite the kingdom, whether she wanted to or not. He would do anything in his considerable power to get what he wanted, and he was evil, and he was bloodthirsty, and he would happily sacrifice millions of innocent lives to get his way. The king is Russia. The queen is Ukraine. This is their story. Part 1. The Puppet the king's trolls were masters of deception. No one better plied those dark arts. Deception was the method he used in his first attempt to reclaim the queen's land. The plan was to install his own underling, a puppet, as the head of state of the queen's newly independent country. The map might indicate that the two nations were separate, but in actuality the king would control both with an iron fist. The puppet was a loudish man called Viktor Yanukovych, he hailed from the eastern part of the Queen's land, Donetsk Oblast, where there was more sympathy for the king than in the western part of her dominion. The puppet was corrupt to the bone and would do anything for money and power, a perfect choice for the job, but he was rough around the edges. Uncouth, a brute, he needed a makeover so the Queen's people might see him differently. There was a makeover artist, an American, who specialized in this sort of thing, polishing up brutes, making them palatable to the electorate. No one was better at this than the American. His name was Paul Manafort. So the king's courtiers brought in Paul Manafort, who transformed the puppet into a viable candidate. Under the American's expert tutelage, the puppet won the election of 2010. He was the president of the queen's country for four years. But there were two problems. First, despite the makeover, the puppet remained a bandit at heart. He was spectacularly corrupt. He looted the queen's coffers, building himself a Versailles-like presidential palace and stealing untold millions of federal dollars. He may have won an election, but he was neither powerful nor successful. The people would not be fooled twice. Second, the queen's subjects wanted to ally themselves with the West, with the European Union, and with the United States. This the king could not allow. For the king knew that once the queen's subjects tasted true democracy, they would never willingly return to him. He would lose the queen's country forever if that happened. Things came to a head in November of 2013. The puppet refused to sign an alliance with the West in defiance of popular wishes. Also, he was a scoundrel and a brazen thief, so the people stood up. There was a series of protests in the Maidan Nazalishnosti, Independence Square, in the queen's capital city of Kiev. These protests were called Euromaidan. The Queen's people had realized that Victor was a puppet and would not support him further. The puppet was ousted on February 22, 2014, whisked away the King's country for his own safety. The King was distraught. Plan A had not worked. It was on to Plan B, the gradual invasion and occupation of the Queen's country. Part 2. The Crimea the best place to start the invasion, the king decided, was in the self-contained territory that the Tatars called Kirim, the Crimea. 
There were more of the king's supporters there than anywhere else in the queen's country, and the place had both strategic importance and lovely vacation sites. No sooner had the puppet been deposed than pro-king, anti-queen protests began in the Crimea. The real problem was with the West. The Americans and their allies would not allow the king to invade and occupy a sovereign nation. Saddam Hussein had tried this in 1991, and allied forces joined together to thwart him. The king feared the same result, but the king had an ace up his sleeve. The man in charge of military intelligence for the United States, Mike Flynn, was both an admirer of the king and a critic of the American president, Obama. Flynn had visited the king's own intelligence headquarters and was on collegial terms with the king's own spy master. Perhaps he could be fed bad information, which might at least delay an allied response. On February 28th, 2014, the king's chief spymaster was scheduled to visit Mike Flynn in Washington. The visit never happened. The night before, soldiers loyal to the king but not wearing his royal insignia captured a series of strategic sites across the Crimea, including the Supreme Council. A Crimean puppet of the king was installed there. Two weeks later, a referendum was held. An overwhelming majority supported independence for the Crimea, which in practice meant annexation by the king. The vote, needless to say, was rigged. The king braced for a response from the West. There were some sanctions. Irritating, to be sure, but hardly the end of the world. And that was it. He had won. The king had marched right in and occupied land belonging to the queen. And the world just let it happen. Six weeks after the stealth invasion of Crimea, Mike Flynn was removed from his post by President Obama. The reason is still cloaked in secrecy, but in December of 2015, Flynn found himself in the king's palace, a guest of honor, seated next to him at a formal dinner. Was this perhaps a reward for a job well done? But the king was not one to rest on his laurels. The Crimea did not satisfy him. He wanted all of the queen's lands, and he would not stop until he had achieved this objective. Part 3. The Criminal The next president of the queen's country was an oligarch named Petro Poroshenko, the Chocolate King. He was rich beyond measure, not as corrupt as the puppet, but unable to stop the rampant corruption in the government. The king bided his time. He sent special forces and spies to infiltrate the eastern provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. When the moment was right, he would have those provinces declare independence, as Crimea had, and annex them. In the meantime, he turned his attention to the West. If he could exert some control over the leaders of the Western nations, so dissent, and break up their alliances, the king could have his way with the queen's lands. One way... To weaken the Western alliances, the king determined was to have Great Britain remove itself from the European Union. Many billions of stolen dollars from the king's kingdom, vast fortunes, wound up in the city of London. Thus, the king had great sway there. He used his enormous influence to lobby for Britain to leave. And lo, in a referendum on the 23rd of June, 2016, Britain voted to leave the EU. This was excellent for the king, but bad for the Western alliances and catastrophic for Great Britain. 
It was like felling a helicopter with a pistol. An entire, once-mighty nation, careering out of control, was so preoccupied with saving itself that it had to ignore external events. Once the greatest empire the world had ever known, Britain was now sidelined. Even today, its rumpled prime minister remains an apologist for the king. Also in 2016, makeover artist Paul Manafort was tapped to pretty up another loudish criminal who was running for president, this time in America. The king knew this criminal well. The criminal worked for the king's mob bosses for decades, laundering their dirty money. There was no question he would play ball. Another of the king's associates, Mike Flynn, also worked on the criminal's campaign. For a time, Flynn was being considered as the criminal's running mate. The criminal was named Donald John Trump. He was the bankrupt host of a cancelled reality TV show, a blowhard and a nebbish. The king's spymasters had been cultivating him for many years. The king would be hard-pressed to find a more perfect yes-man to install in the White House. The criminal was running as a Republican, a party that shared many of the values espoused by the king. White supremacy, patriarchy, Christianity, authoritarianism, and so forth. The king's spies hacked into the server used by the Republicans, collecting incriminating information, what the king called Compromat. The leaders of the Republican Party knew what the king was up to in the Queen's country. There was even a recording that confirmed this, but they didn't care. To win the election, to maintain power, to get what they wanted, they were happy to take the king's side. Although some of them had no choice. At the behest of the criminal, the Republican Party even changed its platform to weaken its support for the Queen's country. The king used every means at his disposal to help the criminal win. The king despised the criminal's opponent, the woman, because she recognized him for what he was. Weak, insecure, damaged, crooked, an imposter, a cosplayer, a troll. That, and she reminded him of the queen. With the king's help, the criminal won the election. And once the yes-man was installed, the king leaned on the criminal to help him. In Finland, another country the king had long coveted, he met the criminal at a summit. The criminal prostrated himself before the king and kissed the ring. In 2019, looking ahead to the election the next year, the king worried that Joe Biden, who, as President Obama's vice president, had shown contempt for the king, would run against the criminal. So, in the last days of the oligarch's administration, the king had the corrupt prosecutor general in the queen's country make all kinds of wild and false assertions. Lie number one, it was the queen, not the king, who had interfered in the 2016 election. The king's involvement was a hoax. Lie number two, the American ambassador to the queen's country, Maria Yovanovitch, was a bad actor. Lie number three, Biden pressured the oligarch to fire the prosecutor in order to protect his son, Hunter, who was on the board of an energy company in the Queen's country. These lies circulated widely in the United States, disseminated by American scribblers in league with the king. Criminal yes-man took action, recalling the ambassador from the Queen's country for no good reason. Hunter Biden became famous. Looking ahead to 2020, the king did not fear most of the criminal's potential opponents. Two of them, the hoary scold from Vermont, and the pretty cult member from Hawaii, he rather fancied. But there were two candidates that the king wanted to prevent from taking power, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. 
the king feared what would happen if either one of them were to succeed the criminal as president. He knew that those two saw him for what he really was. So he had his purveyor of deceit craft disinformation campaigns against them, attacking Biden for being senile, and Harris for being a slut. He knew Americans were gullible and would fall for it. Part 4. The Jester Back in the Queen's lands, the oligarch's administration was corrupt, which suited the king's purposes just fine. The oligarch was up for re-election in 2019. His opponent was a comedian, a jester, on a popular TV show. The jester had played the president of the Queen's country. Life mirrored art. In April of 2019, this jester, Volodymyr Zelensky, was elected president. The jester was not perfect. He was a political outsider. Corruption was still rampant, and it was hard to combat it. And the king kept up the attacks in the eastern provinces which the jester could not stop. The jester wanted the queen's country to join forces with the West. He wanted to be part of those alliances. The king did not want this. Not at all. The king thought the jester was a weakling. He was a jester after all. The jester knew he needed military aid so he could defend the queen's lands when the king invaded. The jester also knew the Americans had pledged to send over military equipment to bolster the queen's army. On his second call with the criminal... The first was a quick congratulations. The jester asked about the status of the aid he was supposed to have already received. The criminal told him, There were now conditions attached to the release of the aid. I would like you to do us a favor, though, the criminal told the jester. The new conditions were, The jester must investigate or announce an investigation into the activities of Joe Biden and his son Hunter in the Queen's country. The jester must push the narrative that the Queen and not the King had interfered in the 2016 election. The jester must meet with the criminal's representatives on these matters, the criminal's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and Attorney General Bill Barr. This was not what Congress had approved, and the jester knew it. The criminal, the jester realized, was trying to strong-arm him. The next day... Two of the criminal's envoys, Kurt Volker and Gordon Sonland, visited the jester to try and get him to play ball. But the jester did not play ball. So, in July of 2019, the criminal told the Office of Management and Budget to suspend all U.S. security assistance to the Queen's country. No money or arms for the Queen's country. This was, of course, exactly what the king wanted. The West to pull out of the Queen's lands, leaving them vulnerable to invasion. This extortion attempt came to light in August of 2019 in a report by a whistleblower. It led to the criminal's first impeachment in January 2020, although he was clearly guilty, the Senate, a majority of whom were Republicans, loyal to both the criminal and the king, voted to acquit him. The king was still powerful, but all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't get the criminal elected again. Two months after the criminal's defeat at the polls, the king stood back and watched as besiegers stormed the capital on January 6, 2021. Spurred to action by the criminal and by his associate, Mike Flynn, but the insurrection failed. The incoming American president and vice president were the two candidates the king most feared, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Part 5. The Endgame 
By the winter of 2022, it was clear that the tide had turned against the king. Under the leadership of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the free world, fractured by the king's meddling during the criminal's term of office, reassembled. Although the West had no intention of attacking his kingdom, the king perceived this as a threat. He wrongly believed that all leaders were cruel and bloodthirsty like he was. The king mobilized his troops and lined them up on the border of the queen's country. There were over a hundred thousand men, more than had assembled in Europe since the Second World War. His plan was simple. He would kill some of his own troops, blame it on the Queen's defense forces, and use that as a pretext to invade. But Joe Biden knew this because American spies knew exactly what the king was doing, and Joe Biden told the whole world what the king's plan was before it could be enacted. The king was livid. How had the senile old man found out? Who told him? Who were the spies in his midst? So it was back to the drawing board. Ultimately, the king decided that he'd waited long enough. He wanted to take the queen's land. All of it. He wanted to subdue her once and for all. So he had two more puppets in the eastern provinces declare the independence of Luhansk and Donetsk. And his kingdom recognized these new nations. Then, claiming he was defending his own people in those new republics from the Queen's Nazi stormtroopers, a tall tale no one beyond his kingdom believed, he invaded. The King's plan was for a blitzkrieg, a quick strike, over and done in 48 hours. He thought the Queen's people would greet him as a liberator. He thought the jester would turn tail and run, like the President of Afghanistan had after the American forces withdrew. He did not. They did not. They resisted. They resist still. Every day the jester remains alive. Hope for the queen's country intensifies. And if the jester is killed, he will be hailed the world over as a martyr. The jester has made his place in history as a hero, while the king will now be regarded as a madman and a failure. This, too, the king knows. Meanwhile, Joe Biden has united the entire free world to the cause. What the criminals spent four years undermining at the king's behest was built back better by the president and his diplomats in a matter of days. In a few short weeks, the king destroyed his economy, his hold on power, and his legacy, and needlessly slaughtered many thousands of people, including children and hospital patients, and reduced to rubble beautiful towns and cities. The king has failed, utterly and completely. It will take years for his kingdom to recover from the damage he wrought. There is no way out now, no way to save face. He must go down with the ship. The king is isolated, alone. His kingdom is a pariah on the world stage, backed only by the world's other pariahs. Once reliable allies have not rushed to his aid, even neutral nations took the queen's side, even in his palace, the king must be vigilant. The surest way this ends is with his assassination, and he knows it. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. So the king sits at a long table twenty feet from the closest underling. He takes his meetings remotely. He thinks twice before sipping his tea. Who will play Brutus to the king's Caesar? His chef and most trusted friend, who runs the mercenaries and the trolls, the gas company head known as Darth Vader, the jackal of a foreign minister who once yucked it up 
with the criminal in the Oval Office, with his yacht and his daughter in the posh London neighborhood, the simpleton head of the army with his ridiculous ribbons and medals, the sniveling spokesman with the pedophile mustache, probably it will be Patrashev, the spymaster. He has the invisible poisons at his disposal and the courage to use them. And so the king rants and raves and sacks some or other general and makes increasingly unhinged public statements. The free world fears his nuclear weapons, but if he orders a nuclear strike, would anyone even listen at this point? Would the missiles even launch? The king is not sure enough to put it to the test. And so his head swells, and his leg twitches, and his hands tremble and he keeps up the wholesale slaughter of innocents in the queen's country, as he did in Syria and in Chechnya, because the king is a ruthless butcher, and he waits to see which of his minions will rise against him and end his reign of terror. The word czar, the king knows, derives from Caesar. Beware the Ides of March. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.